Chapter thirty three, part one of Etiquette. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Etiquette in Society, in Business, in Politics, and at Home by Emily Post. Chapter thirty three, part one. Dress. Clothes are to us what fur and feathers are to beasts and birds. They not only add to our appearance, but they are our appearance. How we look to others entirely depends upon what we wear and how we wear it. Manners and speech are noted afterward, and character last of all. In the community where we live, admirableness of character is the fundamental essential, and in order to achieve a position of importance, personality is also essential. But for the transient impression that we make at home, abroad, everywhere in public, two superficial attributes are alone indispensable, good manners and a pleasing appearance. It is not merely a question of vanity and inclination. In New York, for instance, a woman must dress well to pay her way. In Europe, where the title of Duchess serves in lieu of a court train of gold brocade, or in bohemian circles where talent alone may count, or in small communities where people are known for what they really are, appearance is of aesthetic rather than essential importance. In the world of smart society, in America at any rate, clothes not only represent our ticket of admission, but our contribution to the effect of a party. What makes a brilliant party? Clothes. Good clothes. A frumpy party is nothing more nor less than a collection of badly dressed persons. People with all the brains, even all the beauty imaginable, make an assemblage of dowds, unless they are well-dressed. Not even the most beautiful ballroom in the world, decorated like the Garden of Eden, could in itself suggest a brilliant entertainment, if the majority of those who filled it were frumps, or worse yet, vulgarians. Rather be frumpy than vulgar. Much. Frumps are often celebrities in disguise, but a person of vulgar appearance is vulgar all through. THE SHEEP Frumps are not very typical of America, vulgarians are somewhat more numerous, but the greatest number of all are the quietly dressed, unnoticeable men and women who make up the representative backbone in every city, who buy good clothes, but not more than they need, and whose ambition is merely to be well enough dressed to fit in with their background, whatever their background may be. Less numerous, but far more conspicuous, are the dressed-to-the-minute women who, like sheep exactly, follow every turn of latest fashion blindly and without the slightest sense of distance or direction. As each new season's fashion is defined, all the sheep run and dress themselves each in a replica of the other. Their own types and personalities have nothing to do with the case. Fashion says, wear bolster cases tied at the neck and ankle, or a few wisps of gauze held in place with court plaster, and daughter, mother, grandmother, and all the neighbors wear the same. If emerald green is the fashionable color, all of the yellowest skins will be framed in it. When hobble skirts are the thing, the fattest wobble along, looking for all the world like chandeliers tied up in mosquito netting. If ball dresses are cut to the last limit of daring, the ample billows of the fat will vie blandly with the marvels of anatomy exhibited by the thin. Comfort, convenience, becomingness, adaptability, beauty are of no importance. Fashion is followed to the letter. Therefore they fancy, poor sheep, they are the last word in smartness. Those whom the fashion suits are smart. 
but they are seldom, if ever, distinguished, because they are all precisely alike. THE WOMAN WHO IS REALLY CHIC The woman who is chic is always a little different, not different in being behind fashion, but always slightly apart from it. Chic is a borrowed adjective, but there is no English word to take the place of elegant, which was destroyed utterly by the reporter or practical joker who said, elegant dresses. And yet there is no synonym that will express the individuality of beautiful taste, combined with personal dignity and grace, which gives to a perfect costume an inimitable air of distinction. Undam elegant is all of that. And Mrs. Oldname is just such a person. She follows fashion merely so far as is absolutely necessary. She gets the latest model, perhaps, but has it adapted to her own type, so that she has just that distinction of appearance that the sheep lack. She has even clung, with slight modifications, to the worth ball-dress, and her wrapped or fitted bodice has continued to look the smartest in every ballroom, in spite of the Greek drapery and one-piece meal-bag and all the other kaleidoscopic changes of fashion the rest of us have been through. But the average would-be independent who determines to stand her ground, saying, These new models are preposterous, I shall wear nothing of the sort, and keeps her word, soon finds herself not at all an example of dignity, but an object of derision. Fashion has little in common with beauty. Fashion ought to be likened to a tide or epidemic. Sometimes one might define it as a sort of hypnotism, seemingly exerted by the gods as a joke. Fashion has the power to appear temporarily in the guise of beauty, though it is the antithesis of beauty nearly always. If you doubt it, look at old-fashioned plates. Even the woman of beautiful taste succumbs occasionally to the epidemics of fashion, but she is more immune than most. All women who have any clothes sense whatever know, more or less, the type of things that are their style, unless they have such an attack of fashionitis as to be irresponsibly delirious. To describe any details of dress that will not be as queer tomorrow as today's fashions are bound to be would seem at the outset pretty much like writing about next year's weather. And yet there is one unchanging principle which must be followed by every woman, man, and child that is well-dressed, suitability. Nor does suitability mean merely that you must choose clothes suitable to your age and appearance, and that you must get a ball-dress for a ball and a street-dress to walk in. It means equally that you must not buy clothes out of proportion to your income, or out of keeping with your surroundings. Disproportionate Expenditure in Bad Taste About fifteen years ago, the extravagance in women's dress reached such a high-water mark that it was not unheard of for a New York woman to spend a third of her husband's income on clothes. All women of fashion bought clothes when it would not have occurred to them to buy furniture when it would have seemed preposterous to buy a piece of jewelry. But clothes, clothes, and more clothes, each more hand-embroidered than the last, until just as it seemed that no dress was fit to be seen if it hadn't a month or two of someone's time embroidered on it, the work on clothes subsided. Until now we are at the other extreme. No work is put on them at all. At least clothes today are much more sensible, and let us hope the sense will be lasting." The war did at least make people realize that luxuries in trimmings could go too far. Ten years ago the American woman who lived in a little cottage, who walked when she went out, or took the streetcar, wore the same clothes exactly that Mrs. Gilding wore in her Victoria, or trailed over a mean rug. The French woman has always been, and the American woman of taste is now, 
too great an artist to sit in a little room with its cotton-print slip-covers, muslin curtains, and geranium pots on the window-ledge, in anything strikingly elaborate and expensive. Charming as her dress may be in line and cut and color, she keeps it, no matter how intrinsically good it may be, in harmony with her geranium pots and her chintz. On the other hand, clothes that are too plain can be equally out of proportion. Last winter, for instance, a committee of ladies met in what might safely be called the handsomest house in New York, in a room that would fit perfectly in the palace of Versailles, filled with treasures such as those of the Wallace collection. The hostess presided in a black serge golf skirt, a businesswoman's white shirt-waist, and stout walking boots, her hair brushed flat and tidily back, and fastened as though for riding, her face and hands redolent of soap. No powder, not a nail manicured. Had she been a girl earning her living, she could not have been more suitably dressed, but her millions and her palace background demand that her clothes be at least moderately in keeping. One does not have to be dowdy as an alternative to being too richly dressed, and to define differences between clothes that are notable because of their distinction and smartness, and clothes that are merely conspicuous and therefore vulgar, is a very elusive point. However, there are certain rules that seem pretty well established. Vulgar Clothes Vulgar clothes are those which, no matter what the fashion of the moment may be, are always too elaborate for the occasion, too exaggerated in style, or have accessories out of proportion. People of uncultivated taste are apt to fancy distortions, to exaggerate rather than modify the prevailing fashions. For example, a conspicuous evidence of bad style that has persisted through numberless changes in fashion is the overdressed and over-trimmed head. The woman of uncultivated taste has no more sense of moderation than the queen of the cannibals. She will elaborate her hairdressing to start with. This is all right if elaboration really suits her type. And then she will decorate it with everything in the way of millinery and jewelry that she can lay her hands on. Or, in the daytime, she fancies equally over-weighted hats, and rich-looking fur coats, and the latest addition in the most conspicuous possible footwear. And she much prefers wearing rings to gloves. Maybe she thinks they do not go together? She despises sensible clothing. She also despises plain fabrics and untrimmed models. She also cares little, apparently, for staying at home, since she is perpetually seen at restaurants and at every public entertainment. The food she orders is rich. The appearance she makes is rich. In fact, to see her often is like nothing so much as being forced to eat a large amount of butter, plain. Beau Brummel's remark that when one attracted too much notice one could be sure of not being well-dressed but overdressed has for a hundred years been the comfort of the dowdy. It is, of course, very often true, but not invariably. A person may be stared at for any one of many reasons. It depends very much on the stare. A woman may be stared at because she is indiscreet, or because she looks like a left-over member of the circus, or because she is enchanting to look at. If you are much stared at, what sort of a stare do you usually meet? Is it bold or mocking, or is it merely that people look at you wistfully? If the first, change your manner. If the second, wear more conventional clothes. If the third, you may be left as you are. But be sure of your diagnosis of this last. Extravagance, not vulgarity. Ostentation is always vulgar, but extravagance is not necessarily vulgar. 
not by any means. Extravagance can become dishonest if carried beyond one's income. Nearly everything that is beautiful or valuable is an extravagance, for most of us. Always to wear new gloves is an extravagant item for one with a small allowance, but scarcely vulgar. A laundry bill can be extravagant, flowers in one's city house, a piece of beautiful furniture, a good tapestry, each is an extravagance to an income that cannot easily afford the expenditure. To one sufficient to buy the tapestry, the flowers are not an extravagance at all. To buy quantities of things that are not even used after they are bought is sheer wastefulness, and to buy everything that tempts you, whether you can afford to pay for it or not, is, if you cannot afford it, verging on the actually dishonest. Dresses for Dinners and Balls Supposing, since clothes suitable to the occasion are the first requisite of good taste, we take up a few details that are apart from fashion. A dinner dress really means every sort of low or half-low evening dress. A formal dinner dress, like a ball dress, is always low-necked and without sleeves, and is the handsomest type of evening dress that there is. A ball dress may be exquisite in detail, but is often merely effective. The perfect ball dress is one purposely designed with a skirt that is becoming when dancing. A long-wrapped type of dress would make Diana herself look like a toy monkey on a stick, but might be dignified and beautiful at dinner. A dinner dress differs from a ball dress in little except that it is not necessarily designed for freedom of movement. Hair ornaments always look well at a ball, but are not especially appropriate, unless universally in fashion, on other occasions. A lady in a ball dress with nothing added to the head looks a little like being hatless in the street. This sounds like a contradiction of the criticism of the vulgarian. But because a tiara is beautiful at a ball, or a spray of feathers, or a high comb, or another ornament, does not mean that all of these should be put on together and worn in a restaurant, which is just what the vulgarian would do. Whether to wear a headdress, however, depends not alone upon fashion, but upon the individual. If the type of hair ornament at the moment in fashion is becoming, wear it, especially to balls and in a box at the opera. But if it is not becoming, don't. Ladies of fashion, by the way, do not have their hair especially dressed for formal occasions. Each wears her hair a certain way, and it is put up every morning just as carefully as for a ball. The only time it is arranged differently is for riding. An informal dinner dress is merely a modified formal one. It is low in front and high in the back, with long or elbow sleeves, or perhaps it is Dutch neck and no sleeves. When trains are in fashion, all older women should wear them. Fashion or no fashion, no woman who has passed forty looks really well in a cut-off evening dress. An effect of train, however, can very adequately be produced with any arrangement or trimming that extends upon the floor. The informal dinner dress is worn to the theatre, the restaurant of high class, the concert, and the opera. Informal dinner dresses are worn in the boxes at the opera on ordinary nights, such as when no especially great star is to sing, and when one is not going on to a ball afterward. But a ball dress is never inappropriate, especially without headdress. On gala nights, ball dresses are worn in the boxes, and headdresses, and as many jewels as one chooses, or has. THE TEA GOWN Everyone knows that a tea-gown is a hybrid between a wrapper and a ball-dress. It has always a train, and usually long flowing sleeves. 
is made of rather gorgeous materials, and goes on easily, and its chief use is not for wear at the tea-table, so much as for dinner alone with one's family. It can, however, very properly be put on for tea, and if one is dining at home, kept on for dinner. Otherwise a lady is apt to take tea in whatever dress she had on for luncheon, and dress after tea for dinner. One does not go out to dine in a tea-gown, except in the house of a member of one's family, or a most intimate friend. One would wear a tea-gown in one's own house, in receiving a guest to whose house one would wear a dinner-dress. When in doubt. There is one rule that is fairly safe to follow. When in doubt, wear the plainer dress. It is always better far to be underdressed than overdressed. If you don't know whether to put on a ball-dress or a dinner-dress, wear the dinner-dress. Or whether to wear cloth or brocade to a luncheon, wear the cloth. On the street. Your tea-gowns, since they are never worn in public, can literally be as bizarre as you please, and if you are driving in a closed motor, you can also wear an original type of dress. But in walking on the street, if you care to be taken for a well-bred person, never wear anything that is exaggerated. If skirts are short, don't wear them two inches shorter than anyone else's. If they are long, don't go down the street dragging a train and sweeping the dirt up on the under-flouncings. Let us hope that fashion never comes back. Don't wear too much jewelry. It is in bad taste in the first place, and in the second is a temptation to a thief. And don't, under any circumstances, distort your figure into a grotesque shape. Country Clothes Nothing so marks the person who doesn't know as inappropriate choice of clothes. To wear elaborate clothes out of doors in the country is quite as out of place as to parade sports clothes on the streets in town. It is safe to say that sport clothes are appropriate country clothes, especially for all young people. Elderly ladies, needless to say, should not don sporting eccentricities, nor wear sweaters to lunch parties, but sensible country clothes, such as have for many decades been worn in England, of homespun or serge or jersey cloth, or whatever has replaced these materials, are certainly more appropriate to walk in than a town costume, even for a lady of seventy. Young people going to the country for the day wear sports clothes, which, if seen early in the morning in town and again late in the afternoon, merely show you have been to the country. But town clothes in the country proclaim your ignorance of fitness. Even for a lunch party at Golden Hall or Great Estates, everyone who is young wears smart country clothes. Shoes and Slippers Sport shoes are naturally adapted to the sport for which they are intended. High-heeled slippers do not go with any country clothes, except organdy or muslins or other distinctly feminine summer dresses. Elaborate afternoon dresses of painted chiffons, embroidered mulls, etc., are seen only at weddings, lawn parties, or at watering places abroad. A Suggestion to Those Who Mind Sunburn no advice is intended for those who have a skin that either does not burn at all, or turns a beautiful smooth Hawaiian brown, but a woman whose creamy complexion bursts into freckles as violent as they are hideous at the first touch of the sun need no longer stay perpetually indoors in daytime, or venture out only when swathed like a Turk, if she knows the virtue in orange as a color that defies the sun's rays. A thin veil of red-orange is more effective than a thick one of blue or black. Orange shirt-waists do not sound very conservative, but they are mercifully conserving to arms sensitive to sunburn. 
Young Mrs. Gilding, whose skin is as perishable as it is lovely, always wears orange on the golf course. A skirt of burnt orange serge of homespun or linen, and shirt-waists of orange linen or crepe de chine. A hat with a brim and a harem veil, pinned across her nose under her eyes, of orange marquisette, which is easier to breathe through than chiffon, allows her to play golf or tennis or to motor, or even go out in a sailboat and keep her skin without a blemish. Constance Style, who also has a skin that the sun destroys, wears orange playing tennis, but for bathing wears a high neck and long-sleeved bathing suit, and makes her face up, also the backs of her hands, with theatrical grease paint that has a good deal of yellow in it, and flesh-color ordinary powder on top. The grease paint withstands hot sun and water, but it is messy. The alternative, however, is a choice between complexion or bathing as it is otherwise prohibitive for the sun afflicted to have both. End of chapter 33, part 1